welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. How much does God truly know you? And knowing that, how much does God still love you and pursue you? Teaching team member Caleb Click brings us this message entitled, Choose This Day, which covers Judges chapters 1 and 2. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Hear the word of the Lord from Judges, chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, And have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you you've not left us to our own devices, but have given us your word uh, to tell us who you are, how we can come to know you. And so we pray, uh, just as we sang a moment ago, that you would open up the heavens. We ask that you would open up our hearts. We pray for the same for Caleb, who's about to preach your word to us. Holy Spirit, would you, would you guide would you guide us that we might believe your good news, that we might walk in your ways, that the gospel might go forth from this people in this place. We pray in the name of Christ alone. Amen. Good morning, everyone. This is good to be back with y'all. This, uh, if you've noticed, there's a trend in this sermon and the one I preached previously. You're back in the book of Judges because they told me I could do what I wanted again. And I love this book. You may or may not know this, but I've got three little girls and my girls love stories. They love climbing on my lap and on Mallory's lap before they go to bed and they love having us read these stories to them. And if you've ever put a kid to bed, you know they don't just want uh, every story in the world. They want usually one book in particular and they want it over and over and over again. And usually it's the one that you as a parent you don't particularly like, but they keep asking for it. Well, a couple of years ago, Mary Neal, my oldest daughter, she was really into this one particular book. And it wasn't the worst of books. It was totally fine, honestly. And it, the very last line of it actually made it pretty good. But she wanted it every night. She wanted me to pick up that book. She wanted me to read that same story to her over and over and over again. And here's what the story was. It was the story of a little boy who comes home one day to find out that Jesus has come to visit. And Jesus is willing to answer any question that he asks. So he asks Jesus, you know, why is the sky blue and not yellow? Why do I have two legs and not eight? Why do I need my teeth to chew? Why, as my teachers told me in Sunday school, did you have to die? And Jesus answers question after question until finally the little boy thinks to himself, after Jesus has done so much for me, what can I give him in return? I, I could give him my fire engine, but I'm not sure he'd want that. I could give him my bicycle, but I don't know if he'd have much use for a bicycle. And then on the very last page of the book, it says this thing that I think is absolutely beautiful. The little boy says, I know what I'll give him. I'll give him my heart. I love that line because that's the one line that my daughter, Mary Neal, latched onto. When she was reading that book every day, that was the line that bored itself into her little brain. And I remember distinctly, this is not a made up story. I know you sometimes think that when you hear pastors give illustrations, this is true. I picked her up in the middle of her obsession right before I got in my car to go to work. And I said, Mary Neal, who do you belong to? And Mary Neal said, I belong to Jesus, Daddy. And I said, and what would Jesus want from you? And Mary Neal, as the little theologian that kids so often are, Mary Neal said, he wants my heart, Daddy. He wants my heart. Now, I don't think that my then two-and-a-half-year-old little girl understood half of what she was saying. But she couldn't have said something more profound, could she? Because as you read through the scriptures and you look at the story of God and the life of his people, what you see is if there is one thing that God wants, one thing that God is constantly pursuing, it is this, it is the hearts of his people. 
He wants a people who love him with all their hearts and with all their soul and with all their strength and with all their mind. He wants a people who worship him and worship him alone, who love him and him only and no other. And yet as we read through the story of the scriptures, and not only that, but as we look at our own hearts, what is the one thing that we see? That thing that God is pursuing that thing that God wants from his people, that is the one thing that in our own power and in our own strength, we will absolutely never give him. It's the story of Judges. Judges is the story of a God who is pursuing the hearts of his people and his people again and again, in every way imaginable, his people say no. In the book just before Judges begins, the book of Joshua, at the very end, Joshua is looking out at the people of God before he dies. And if you don't remember, Joshua is the one that God appointed to succeed Moses as the leader of Israel. He's the one that was entrusted with the conquest of Canaan, a job that he almost completely finishes. And I want you to pay attention to that almost because it's significant. And Joshua stands in front of God's people right before he dies. And Joshua says, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember God and I want you to remember all that he has done because he kept his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He took that little insignificant family and he turned them into the mighty nation that you see here all around you. He delivered you from slavery in Egypt. He brought Pharaoh to his knees. He parted the sea. He brought you through the wilderness. He fed you with bread from heaven. He brought water out of the rock. He carried you across the Jordan River. He drove the nations out in front of you. He brought the walls of Jericho crashing down. When the nations tried to rain down curses upon you, God turned them into blessings. And now before I die, God says to you this, do not stop the conquest. Drive out all of the nations and drive them out completely and destroy every single one of their altars to their gods. Because if you do not, if you do not, they will become a snare to you. And the very hand that has brought you all of these blessings, that hand will take those blessings away and turn them into a curse. Choose this day whom you will serve. The God who loved you and delivered you from Egypt and has promised to be with you from the first day to the last were the gods of these nations whose altars you've been commanded to destroy. Give him your heart. And Israel, Israel does what you would expect them to do in that moment. They say, here it is. We will serve you and we will serve you only. And for a moment, it looks as though it might be true, but then Judges starts, as always happens. And the people who claimed that they would be a faithful bride to their savior, they show themselves in truth to be an unfaithful one. A people whose hearts are not full of love, but instead are full of rebellion, even as ours so often are. Judges chapter one starts and Joshua, he has died. And God's people, they seem to be keeping the command. They are driving the nations out before them. And at first it seems as though everything is going really well. 
God is with them, the nations are running, Israel is winning, but then there begins to be this really unnerving refrain. Six times in chapter one, they could not and they did not drive the nations out. And by the time you get to the end of chapter one, not only is Israel not driving the nations out, but the nations are beginning to drive Israel back. And these questions start to pop into your head. God's with them. They're in the land. He's commanded them to drive the nations out. And yet it seems as though they are not able to defeat them. And as though the nations, they are not running anymore. Something seems to be wrong. Is God not powerful enough? Is God not being faithful to his promises? And then in Judges chapter 2, it gives you the answer. It's not that God has been unfaithful. It's that Israel has. Look at what it says. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No matter how many times you sin, I will always take you back. I will never abandon you. You are my bride and I am your husband. But you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Drive them out. You shall not break, you shall break down their altars, destroy every one, lest you be tempted to worship those gods. But notice the crucial part. But you have not obeyed my voice. You chose to do something different. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. Now pay attention to what just happened because this is going to shape everything that comes. It wasn't that Israel didn't have the ability to drive the nations out. It's that Israel chose not to drive the nations out. They forgot that when God promised them that he would be with them and he would drive the nations out before them, he didn't promise them it would be swift. And he didn't promise them it would be easy. And as soon as they begin to face the first bit of real resistance, Israel begins to wonder if maybe there's a better way. If maybe when God said to drive the nations out, he didn't mean all of them. If maybe when he said to destroy them, he didn't mean every single person, then maybe they could leave a few. And maybe not only that, I mean, God wants them to flourish. He wants them to do well. Maybe, maybe that could actually be a good thing. Maybe they could take those people and they could use those people and make them slaves, even as Israel were slaves in Egypt. Because notice what the other refrain of Judges chapter one is. It's not just that they didn't drive them out. Four times, four times, I went to Georgia. Four times. Four times is this. They put them to forced labor, which tells you what? They had the power. They chose not to use it. They compromised. That may not seem like a really significant thing. It may seem small in the grand scheme of things, 
But small compromises lead to large betrayals, don't they? If you've ever sat with someone who's committed the sin of adultery and they're honest and they've looked deeply at their own heart, what they'll tell you is that that sin, it wasn't, it wasn't the fruit of a single moment and a single decision. It was the fruit of a thousand small choices and a thousand small compromises where day after day, month after month, year after year, they gave their heart bit by bit to someone or something other than their spouse. So that when the moment of temptation actually came, it was less a choice and more of an inevitability because of a decision that they had made long ago. Compromises, they're not small things because they lead to large betrayals and you see it everywhere in this text. It's the danger that presents itself even to us today. You know, we serve the same God that ruled over Israel and the judges, a God who just like Israel, he wants not just a part of your hearts, he wants the whole thing. A God who has said to you and to me and Jesus, you are my people and I am your God. And we, just like Israel, if we believe in Jesus, we've said, that's true. We want you, we will follow you, our hearts are yours. And yet how often? How often do we find ourselves making compromises along the way? Because just like Israel, we find ourselves stumbling against something that's hard. How often have we heard those commands of Jesus? Forgive others even as I have forgiven you. And then we look around in our lives and we say, well, it would be true in most of these situations, but surely not this one. Because this one would hurt. And this one would be hard, and so in this one I'm going to say no. How often do we look at those areas of our lives where we struggle with temptation and we find ourselves in this constant cycle where we fight and then we fall and we fight and we fall and we fight and we fall, and the struggle is so real and so painful and so arduous, we begin to wonder, surely God wouldn't want us to have to go through this any longer. Surely he wouldn't want it to be this difficult. Surely there's got to be an easier way. Surely he wouldn't care that much if I just said this one thing, I'm just done. And we look at all of those things and we think it is so small and so insignificant, but what judges said is a seed that bears a terrible fruit. Because what begins as compromise in the book of Judges, it ends in adultery. In verse 6, Joshua is dismissing the people, which should cause you to pause and go, wait a second, something's a little off because Joshua died in Judges chapter 1. And it's your mental cue to go, the writer of Judges is flashing back. He is taking you through the exact same events that you've already seen. God has put his people in the land. He has called them to take possession of the land, and God's people are refusing that call. And now the writer of Judges, he wants you to see it, not from Israel's perspective, but from God's. He wants you to see it through the lens of the Redeemer. And here's what it says. Joshua was faithful. The people after, the generation after Joshua, they were faithful to a point, albeit compromised. But the generation after them, they abandoned the Lord. It says in verse 10, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. 
or the work that he had done for Israel. Here's what he's saying. It's not that this generation didn't know of Yahweh. It's not that they didn't know of how he brought them out of slavery in Egypt or carried them through the desert or brought them into the land. It's that that generation looked back at their fathers and they watched as they negotiated with God's commands and they said, well, if, if it wasn't so precious that he should be obeyed with all of their hearts, then why should we? If my fathers didn't count it as precious, why should we? And if they left the nations, why can't we leave the gods? And you see it in everything that follows. It says in verse 11 that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, the people they didn't drive out. And they bowed down to them at the altars they were supposed to destroy. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. The people that God loved. The people that God in mercy and in love delivered from slavery in Egypt. The people that God had poured out blessing upon blessing upon. The people that God had shown himself to be faithful to in every way. They come into the land and they bow down at the very altars they were supposed to destroy and instead of giving their hearts to the Lord, they give it to the Baals. And here's what should be alarming to all of us. As you continue to read the book of the Judges, that abandonment doesn't mean that they actually explicitly rejected Yahweh. Israel doesn't explicitly reject Yahweh. They're still sacrificing to him. They're still calling on his name. They're still saying that they're his people. What they are doing instead is they are saying, Yahweh's been great. Yahweh has brought us into the land, but now we live in the land of Canaan. And Canaan has its own gods, and those gods, they have their own rules. And while we're not going to explicitly abandon Yahweh, we are going to add to him. And they are looking around at this nation, this place that they have come, and they are thinking, well, these people, they flourished here before we got here. They had crops that were bountiful. This is the land of milk and honey for a reason. And so if we want to flourish, if we want to taste all the goodness this land has to offer, then maybe we need to bow to the idols that the nations themselves bow to. Maybe the Baals and the Ashtaroth, they can give us things that God could not. And so we're going to worship not just Yahweh, we're going to worship these gods too. And Yahweh looks at that and what he says is that it wasn't just an addition, that was an abandonment. That was adultery. It, again, it's the same danger that faces us even this morning. You know, we may not live in a culture where the idols are as visible, but we live in a culture that has just as many. We have a thousand different gods, all of them calling for our attention, and every single one of them saying, if you don't give me your allegiance, then you will not live. We live in a land that says, if you can't get the right political party in power, then you're going to lose everything that you love. 
One that says that if you can't get your body to look a certain way or your face to have a certain appearance, if your kids don't get into the right college, if you don't put on the right front in front of people at church, if you're not accepted by the right parties, if you don't make enough money, if you don't get the right job, if you don't get any of these things, then life, it is not worth living. This world that whispers these things that are absolutely insane, like the one that rattles in my head that if I can't beat you at the gym, then something's wrong with me. It's stupid. And yet there is a part of me that is absolutely convinced it's true. And there is an idol that is calling for my heart and saying, if you will only bow here, you will find life. And here's the danger. It's not. It's not that we would explicitly abandon Jesus. It's that we would say with our lips, Jesus, you are Lord. But then in our hearts, we would do exactly what Israel did. And we would say, we need these things too. And the danger is this. What you end up with is not a supplemented Jesus. It's an abandoned Jesus. Because you cannot serve two masters. And there will come a time when you will be faced with a choice between allegiance for one or allegiance for the other. And what the book of Judges is saying in a picture painted large, you cannot miss it, is that the trajectory of every human heart, it is that when that choice comes, in our own power and in our own strength, we will hear that call of God, give me your heart and we will say no. But here's why I love Judges. Judges is a brutal book. You start reading through this text and everything seems to go from bad to worse and then worse and then worse and then worse. And I love it because Israel does everything they could possibly do to make God go, you know what, I'm through. You're the worst people ever. There's no one as bad as you. You're worse than the nations that I just drove out. God has every excuse to go, you know what? This was a mistake. And yet what is the one thing that God doesn't do in Judges? He doesn't abandon his people. He has been calling to them and calling to them and they are saying no. And God, he refuses to give up. And he shows himself while his people have a heart of rebellion, he shows himself to be one who has a heart that is abounding with love. And you see it in two, two very unique ways. And the first one seems a bit counterintuitive. God gets angry. Three times, three times in this text, it says that God was provoked to anger or his anger was kindled within him. Now, if you're at all like me, that is not something you're comfortable thinking about when it comes to God. You know, I don't like to think of God being angry. I don't like to think him being angry with me in particular, but this is something that we struggle with. And I think part of the problem is that when we hear anger, we think of the kind of anger that we experience. You know, I get angry at dumb things. I get angry that events get in the way of me sitting down and watching a Georgia football game, even against Murray State, who I know we're supposed to beat. Because sadly, I kind of love it. I get angry when I go upstairs after my daughters are finishing their nap and I find out that they've smeared poop all over the walls. 
I, I get angry. And I look at all of those things, these stupid things. And whenever I see my anger, I always end up walking away going, that was something I shouldn't have done. It's revealing something broken in me. It's revealing my own sin. It's revealing my own idols. It's revealing my own brokenness. This is something to be confessed and to be repented of. And what we cannot miss is that is not the God of the Bible. The anger of the Lord is not like that. God is not a fallen man with a fallen heart. He is the one who is good and righteous and holy, infinitely and eternally in his very being. He knows no anger but righteous anger. And you see it in this text. Look at verses 14 and 15. It's literally the Exodus put in reverse. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them, the very people that he allowed to plunder Egypt and to plunder the land, he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he took them, the people that he freed from slavery, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord, the hand that came against Pharaoh for their sake, the hand that drove out the nations before them for their sake, that hand was against them for harm. As the Lord warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. We need to make this perfectly clear. Nothing happens to Israel except what God warned them would happen. And not only that, nothing happens to Israel that they did not agree to in Joshua 24. When Israel said, you are my God and I am your people and we are your people, they married the Lord. You want to know why God's angry? It's because he's looking at his spouse. He's looking at the bride to whom he has given his heart and for whose heart he has asked in return and he is watching her give herself to lover after lover after lover after lover. And he is watching them do it even though he has told them anything you need, I will provide everything you require, I will give. You were made for fellowship with me and I am giving it to you. And then he is watching them sell themselves like prostitutes. There's a reason it uses the language of whoredom for idolatry in verse 17. Like prostitutes hoping to get something that that God cannot actually give you in return. And God is angry. But it's an anger. It is an anger whose aim is redemption. The best way I can think to describe this is with my kids. Uh, you know, I've got three girls, as I've already said, and my girls are insane. I love them, but they're crazy. And it sometimes seems, and I'm sure every parent in the room can relate to this, it sometimes seems that whatever I want them to do, they kind of do the opposite. You say, food is at this time. They say, no, we want it earlier. We want it later. You say, here's what I'm offering you to eat. And they say, no, we want something different. Or we want more of the thing you just ran out of. You say, I want you to get in the car and get in your car seats. And they say, we'll get in the car, but we only want to sit in one car seat, which is a problem because there's three of them. And then they hurt each other. 
And not like we're running around the house and we happen to turn the corner at the same time and bonk heads and now we're crying, hurt each other. I mean, you have a doll and I want that doll, so I'm gonna drag you down by the hair and take it from you, kind of hurt each other. Like, I don't care what you say, boys are not the only ones who are violent, girls are mean. They will take you down. And what do you do when you're a parent and you see that happen? I mean, unless, unless I hate my kids, I'm not just gonna wink and nod and go, you'll get them next time. <laughs> what am I gonna do? I'm gonna step in. I'm going to move towards my children. I'm not gonna let their hearts continue in that state. And I will even as a fallen parent with an anger that is never perfect, I will even in righteous anger look at that thing in their heart which is bringing harm not only to others but to themselves and I will hate it. And I will take the hand of discipline and I will move it against my child not because I have ceased to love them but because I actually do. And I look at the cruelty and the indifference that was just on display that thing that would destroy them if they were given up to it. And I will bring my hand against them, not to harm them, but why? To bring their heart home. That's the God of Judges. He is looking at a people who are resisting him at every turn and whose hearts are given to things that would destroy them. And God, with his hand of discipline, he is trying to call them back. He's the one who, as it says in Hebrews, disciplines the ones he loves. He's the one that Augustine describes in his confessions who savages us in his pity because he sees us in our sin and he cannot bear to leave us there. He is the one who in every way is calling us home and you know it for this reason. He shows his love not only in his anger, he shows it in his compassion. God disciplines Israel, but he doesn't leave Israel. He raises up the judges. Look at verses 16 and 18. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved, the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. God looks out on his people who are suffering and enduring distress because of sins that they have committed who deserve far worse than anything that he has given them. And God sees that distressed, and as a father with his children, his heart is moved. And with that hand of discipline, he brings the hand of comfort. And he takes his people out of the ashes and through the judges, he lifts them back up, and he saves them from the fruit of their own sin. Every judge is a picture of God's mercy and compassion to sinful, broken, undeserving people. It is a God who is saying, I will not abandon my sheep. But here's the problem. The judges don't last. Some of them last for 40 years. Some of them last for just a couple. 
But in the end, every single one of the judges dies. And when they do, Israel slips right back into chaos. And worse even than that, there's the fact that all the judges, they're no better than the people. I mean, we looked at Samson just a little while ago, and you kind of have to squint really hard to find something good in Samson. Uh, all the judges are like that. They just get worse and worse and worse and worse. And the greatest problem of all with the judges is this. No matter what the judges do, no matter how good they may be, even the very best of them, they cannot do the one thing that God's people need most. They cannot give them new hearts. And they cannot turn them from covenant breakers into covenant keepers. And you see it. Look at verses 17 and 19. They did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their father had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and noticed this. They were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving and bowing down to them. They did not drop any, any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Don't miss what's being said. God shows his compassion. He delivers his people. He brings the judges. He saves them. He shows them that he will not break his promise even when they have broken theirs. And God's people get worse. It's like an abyss they just keep sliding into. Their hearts are pulling them down and down and down and down. And there is this aching cry all through the book of Judges that something or someone greater has to come. Because the judges, they're not enough. And it is an ache and it is a longing that we feel in our very souls because as we sit in this room, even as we sit here this morning, there and in all of us, there is that question of, could God love someone as broken as me? Could God care for someone who has sinned against him so many times, who has broken his commandments time among measure? Could God love me? Could he save me? How could he embrace me when I have done all of these things? And then there's also that part of us as believers that sits there and goes, God, I want to give you my heart. I want to follow you with all that I am, but for some reason, no matter what I do, it seems as though I continuously fall in the same ways, and it seems as though every morning I wake up and I realize there is yet another idol in my heart that I did not know was there. God says, here's your hope. I didn't just raise up judges for Israel. I raised up Jesus for you. Jesus is everything the judges weren't. Jesus is the king who was raised up for the sake of God's people and who, unlike the judges, didn't succumb to death. He conquered it. Jesus is the king who, unlike all of the judges who came before, he didn't have a heart like the people, but a heart like God's because that's who he was. And not only that, he offered to give us hearts like his. Jesus is the king who steps into that seemingly irreconcilable contradiction that runs all through the book of Judges, a God who says, I will not abandon my people. 
I will not forsake them, but a people who refuse to keep their end of the covenant. And Jesus says, I will be the one who not only makes the promise, I will be the one who fulfills the condition. Jesus is the one who stands in the place of a people who has broken his covenant time among measure and bore in his body the anger of God that our sins have kindled so that we would face not the hand of his curse, but the hand of his blessing. And we would experience as God's children the goodness that only Jesus deserves. And Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who doesn't just say, follow me. He's the one who through his spirit enables you to actually do so. He doesn't just command you to give him your hearts. He gives you a new one so that you actually would. It's Jesus. It's Jesus who says to you what Joshua said to the people of God in Joshua 24. Choose this day whom you will serve. The God who delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption and the forgiveness of your sins or the gods of this world who will take and take and take and take and never make you whole. The king that all of judges cries for. The king that our hearts long for. That's the king we have in Jesus. May we be those who give him our hearts with joy because we have seen and we have tasted of his beauty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a people in need and you are a God who meets it. And so we ask this morning, Lord, as we leave this time that your word would do its work, that Lord, you would take these truths of a God who loves a rebellious people and who loves what is not lovely, not to leave us as we are, but to turn us into something that is truly lovely, something you do only through your son, Jesus Christ. May we come to him with all we are. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.